beginning here on the top of Yudamad Aleph, the Gemara here is discussing what is considered to be the beginning of the meal. And yesterday's daf, we saw Rob suggested that when you wash your hands, that's considered to be the beginning of the meal. And Rab Khanina said it's when you loosen your belt or open up your gartel. The Gemara said that they don't argue, it's just Rob was speaking about the situation in Eretz Yisrael, where washing hands was considered to be the start of the meal. Whereas Rabbi Khanina was speaking about Bovel, where undoing one's belt or opening up the girdle, where they tied it tight, was considered to be the beginning of the meal. The Bali Tosafot over there discussed the fact that Rab is in Bovel speaking to the Talmudim in Eretz Yisrael, and Rabbi Hanina is in Eretz Yisrael speaking to the Talmudim from Bovel, and that goes back to what we discussed in the Gemara and Brachot, the Machloka between Rashi and the Bali Tosafot, but Halan Haluhu, when the Gemara says that's for Bnei Bovel, that's for Eretz Yisrael, do you align the positions with the Amora from Bavel to the people in Bavel, Or can it be that the Amora in Bavel is speaking to the people in Eretz Yisrael? And over here, Rashi is in consonance with Tosafot explaining that Rabbi Hanina's position is about the Bnei Bavel, and Rab's position is about the Bnei Eretz Yisrael. And that's likely influenced by the fact that Abaye says right afterwards that the people of Bavel, based on the fact that they open up their belt, when it comes to davening of Mariv, if Tvilat Arvit is a Rishut, once you've opened up your belt, we don't bother him to refasten it and daven. Assuming, as the Baliyat Tosafot say over here, that you've already said Kriyachmas, you eliminate the issue Midoraita. Whereas if you believe that Arvit is a Chova, then we do bother him, we do insist that he does it. Tosafot over here again mentions the fact that Rishut does not mean optional, but Rishut means when there's alternative mitzvah or a mitigating factor. And in this case, especially, there's the assumption that you will likely daven later if you have that opportunity. And the Gemara questions that assumption because here we're speaking about Tfilet Mincha and we're saying that once you open up your belt that you don't have to go back and daven Mincha. Yet by Marev you're saying you do have to go back and daven. So the Gemara answered there's a difference. Mincha is a time where they drink a little bit but not a lot and therefore there's not a high likelihood that they'll be inebriated even though it's sufficient to disqualify them from Duchening or saying Birkat Kohanim because all you need for that is a threshold of Reviat Yayin. Still in order to be disqualified from davening you would need to be unable to to stand before a melech, which doesn't happen when they drink at mincha time. Whereas when it comes to mariv, when it's going into the nighttime, they're going to go to sleep, there's a higher likelihood that they will become intoxicated and therefore they won't come back and daven in the end. Or that mincha, since it has a fixed time and it's an expiry that comes towards the end of the day, people are very aware and conscious of the fact that they need to daven and therefore they won't forget. Whereas by nighttime, where individuals have the whole night to daven, they push it off, they procrastinate, they fall asleep, and then they forget to daven marib. So for those reasons, we say that Tvilat Arvid is a chuva. We insist that the person davens and refastens his belt or his gartel or his girdle and davens, even though by mincha we don't make such insistence. Now the Gemara begins, five lines down. First of all, what's the big deal? If you say that he opened up his belt, let him just refasten his belt, put his girdle back on. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that considered to be the beginning of the meal as if it's some sort of irrevocable or irreversible act that the person's engaged in and therefore he can't go back to davening once he's opened up his belt? Why does he have to refasten his begarto or put his belt back on, let him leave it off, and go ahead and daven. Gemara answers, Mishum Shenemar, because they quote the Pasuk in Amos, which is speaking about the great presence of Hashem that is coming. There it's more in a negative light, meaning that's the awesomeness and the power of Hashem that's going to wrought destruction. And then it says, L'chein koasel lecha Yisrael, Ekev kizot eselach, Hikon l'krat elukecha Yisrael. Be prepared to greet your God, Yisrael. And based on that, there's a requirement, as Rashi says over here, you should adorn yourself 
you should ready yourself to present yourself before your creator, before your king, before God. It is somewhat akin to what the Gemara in Brachot brought on Daf Lamed Umbet. There, Gemara was darshaning, Hishtachul Hashem Hadra Kodesh, and Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi learned that that was Charedat instead of Hadrat. The Gemara says, why can't you just learn it in its simple meaning, which is Hadar? That before you come before Hashem, you have to adorn yourself. You have to, you have to present yourself in a proper manner. And then they quote the practice of Rabbi Yehuda over there, that he used to adorn himself to prepare himself and make sure that everything was in place and proper, and then he would go and daven. And that's what seemingly Rashi is quoting over here, or explaining it over here. Although, you don't have to go as far as Rashi, which is Hitnehelefanav, which seems to indicate a positive action that you're taking in order to engage. You could simply say, Yisrael, means that you have to present yourself in a normal fashion. That you can't come as a slump before Kodesh Baruch Hu. If your belt's undone and you don't present yourself like people do when they go out, then that's a problem. Now what's interesting about the Gemara here is that there were two questions that were posed by Rav Sheshet. Yeah, the Gemara only seems to address one of them. That's what the Bali Tosavot said. The Gemara didn't bother to answer his first question, which is, what's the big deal? Let him put his belt back on. Now, Tosavot leaves that as an unresolved issue. And he goes on to say, From here you see that a person has to gird themselves, put a gartel on before they daven. But then he brings a mitigating factor. Vitri brings that the reason that they used to put on their belts or tie something around their waist was because they wore tunics without any undergarment, without any pants. And therefore, in order to separate between their libo and erva, which is a requirement for tefillah, to have a chayitz, some sort of separation between your heart and your erva, they needed to put this belt on, otherwise it wouldn't be permitted to daven. Aval the didan, in our day, this is speaking in the time of the Machsor Vitri, the Baliatosafot and Rashi's time, we have a belt around our pants or under our undergarments, we don't need to put on anything extra in order to do this. So the Baliatosafot, see, the Gemara only answering the second question as to why you need to do it, and that, they say, isn't even relevant anymore today because of the fact that they needed it because of the way they dressed, or dressed today, does not require it. On the other hand, the Ritva sees this as being an answer to both issues, which is that, like Rashi explains, it's not simply you have to redo your belt, but you have to present yourself, prepare yourself to stand before your creator. That's an involved process. It's not a one-second thing. You really have to present yourself nicely. If that's the case, it's a much more involved process. And therefore, the answer to both questions is about Hikon Likrat Elokecha Yisrael. But then that also has ramifications, which is the Bayatos of order suggesting that it was a practical issue putting the belt on, whereas the Ritva seems to indicate it was part of a process of preparing oneself to present themselves before a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And if that's the case, then maybe from a practical standpoint, the Gartel is no longer necessary, but from a presentation standpoint, then one would have to do something to present themselves properly before a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And based on that, the Shulchan Aruch says that a person does need to put on Chagurah for Tefillah, but the Magen of Ram over there mentions that the Beit Yosef says that's only true for someone who normally wears a belt or a gartel all day long, but if they don't normally wear it, then there's no necessity to put on. But that means that there is still a necessity to present oneself and prepare oneself to come to Davin for a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and therefore one should make an effort to do something special before they come into davening. I always suggest that it might be a good idea to wash hands before you come into davening. One, because the Rambam says it thinks that's one of the items that are ma'akev tefillah, you can't daven without it. Number two is, it's also something where you're preparing yourself to come before a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Others, like Rabbi Willig, suggest that it has to be done right before Shmon Esrei. 
And when you're about to stand before God, not just for davening in general, but literally when you're about to go before the Melech in Shmon you need to do something special then, whether it is to button your jacket, to firm up your tie, button your top button, do something that makes you more presentable and shows that you're preparing yourself to go before your creator. And now the Gemara brings examples of this idea of Hikon Likrat Elokecha Yisrael. Rava by Rabuna Rame Puzmike Umitzale. He used to put on these are little slippers or socks. But then he would come and daven. Amar, you call Nikrat. You have to prepare yourself and present yourself properly before a Kaddish Baruch Hu. The Tosfot over here says, you see from this, that you're not allowed to daven barefoot. Although the Beit Yosef, the Shulchan Aruch says, that's true in places where people don't go before the kings barefoot. But in countries where people go before the kings barefoot, then that would also be appropriate to go before a Kaddish in that way. Since I don't think that's true almost anywhere in the world anymore, then it would be inappropriate for one to daven without their feet being covered. Rava shadeglime upachar yadei umitzale. Rava used to strip off his cloak, his outer cloak. Then he would clasp his hands together and daven. Amar, he explained his behavior, It's like a servant or a slave before his master. So the glime was a cloak which was worn by people of stature, and that makes the person feel either more important, haughty, or doesn't make them have humility or humbleness before a Kaddish Baruch Hu. When you strip off that outer trapping, that makes it that the individual now is ready to submit themselves before a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So before he came to Domini, he would throw off that outer cloak on all his heirs or things that gave him a state of importance. And also, Pachar Yadeh used to clasp his hands together in order to show that he was pleading. That's the way Rashi seems to indicate before a Kaddish Baruch Hu, or that he was unable to do anything without a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And there's an amazing Rabbeinu Bechai that's found in Parshat Korach, where explaining the reason that by Pnehem, they fall on their faces before the people by the by the faith of Korach, he says that Tvila Tapayim is good for Tvila. That falling on one's face is appropriate and a skula for Tvila. And then he explains that there are three things that falling on your face does. One is that's the Morash Chinah. It shows your tremendous trepidation before God. Shenit. Laharot Tzar To show you that you're in pain and that you are submitting yourself before a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And the last one is, I wrote, Asirat Chushav Ubitul Hargoshotav, to show you that you have no feelings or ability to do anything without a Kodesh Baruch Hu. It's as if your hands are tied. And he brings later on in this explanation in Bamidbar, Peretetzayin, Pasuch Chavet, Zineumot Marima Kavanazot, the other nations show this idea of being completely bound and unable to act without a Kodesh Baruch Hu, when they pulled their hands together, when they plead before a Kodesh Baruch Hu. They don't even know why they do that when they go to beg for mercy. They don't even know why they're doing or demonstrating it that way, which we see in the Gemara here from Rava. It was a practice later on adopted by the non-Jews as well, that when they supplicated or besieged Hashem, the same way that you would do it in that manner before a king, they do it before God, but they do it because it's to show to show that you have no independent power, it's as if your hands are chained up. And it's as if you're giving yourself over to the one who you are beseeching. He says that, according to this, it's because the legs, or the ability to be mobile, is greater than the ability to have the hand motions in order to person to reach their goals or to do what they want, or to do damage. That's why Jews stand with their feet together in Shemona Esrei, and not with their hands together. Shulchan Aruch does bring down 
the idea of putting your hand over your heart, the left hand by your heart, and the right hand clasped over it. So we actually do both. We show our complete subjugation for Akash Baruch Hu by, in essence, tying our legs together and tying our hands together and showing that we have no power before God. And that's what's being shown over here, Pachayodei and Mitzaleh, that Rovo was submitting himself before Gersh Baruch Hu like an Avdo Kamei Mare. And he says that that's an important aspect of coming before God is this presentation of complete submission to God. And the physical demonstration of that is an indication of how we should approach and is influential in our understanding as well as our presentation before God that we understand that we're nobody and we have no power before God, and we're subject to whatever God wants. And that's a part and parcel of our davening. Amar Ravashi, so Ravashi notes, I saw Rav Kana ki ika tsara ba'alma, when he saw there was difficult issues in the world, so it's minyona diyoma, when there are difficulties in the world, person sheds their stature, sheds the things that make them feel important in any way, they diminish themselves, they clasp their hands, and then they daven. Again, one submits themselves before God, understanding that we have no control over anything, and we're begging God to help us out in these situations. And again, he said, similar to a servant or a slave before his master. On the other hand, when there was peace in the world and things were going well, lovish, he would wear his clothing, and put on his cloak, and then he would wrap himself up with his talit, and then he would daven, then he would invoke the principle of hikon, which is that you have to present yourself in your best foot forward when you come before Hashem, that you should be dressed in your finest, and you should present yourself in a manner that indicates your understanding that coming before God is a privilege, like it would be if you were given an audience with a king or with the president or the prime minister. So you have to treat it in the same way and you dress that way. So you have two different approaches here to tefillah. And Ravashi notes that Rav Kahana used both of them depending on what the circumstance was. In good times, the situation demands that we come as if we're presenting ourselves before the king in an honorable and royal manner. Then he dressed up to fit that billing. On the other hand, if it's a time where we are in desperate straits and we're begging a Kodesh Baruch Hu, then we also have to dress that part as well. And through our dress and through our physical posture, we indicate to a Kodesh Baruch Hu our complete submission before him. And that's when he, he removed his cloak and he clasps his hands together. Rabbi Sarabamnuna was going a little long in his tefillah. How is it that you're leaving Chayolam, which is Torah, and you're putting your efforts and your energies into Chayishah, which is tefillah? On the other hand, Rabbi Amnuna believed that the two are separate. There's a time for davening, there's a time for learning. When you're davening, that's not time for learning. And that's clear that today, especially, where Tosua is going to say later on in the Gemara that these questions about forfeiting davening to learn were only for people who, Toratam Umunatan, where their Torah is their occupation. And he says, today we don't have anybody like that. If the Bali Tosua are saying that, then it's certainly true of us today, that when it comes to the time of davening, that's not the time for learning. Learning has its own time, davening has its own time. And one who learns while they're davening is impinging or encroaching on the time that they are supposed to dedicate to davening. And it shows the lack of respect, consideration, and faith in the ability for one to daven and for davening to make a difference and for the need to daven. And therefore, it's an affront in some senses to a Karsh Baruch Hu, especially if the people are so makpid on their time during davening, they don't want to waste a minute, so they need to learn all that time. But yet, in other parts of their life, they don't have such a hakpada 
that they need to learn every second and they let time slide by. And only when it's time for davening do they have this burning desire to learn and to need to learn at that same time. But you see this sentiment over here by Rav Hamnuna that you have to separate the two. There's time for tefillah and there's time for learning and they have to each be done properly in their time. Rabbi Yirmiyah v'yotiv kameh Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Yirmiyah was learning before Rabbi Zera. They were learning together. It was getting late for davening. Rabbi Yirmiyah stood up as Rashi says. He started to push towards going to daven. Rabbi Zera said about Rabbi Yirmiyah, Someone who takes away their ear from hearing Torah, that his prayer is also a toeva. Rabbi Zera is implying from this pasuk in Mishlei that it's not simply that when you leave the Torah, then your tefillah is also something that is not considered or wanted by Kosh Baruch Hu, but in the direct result. I mean, that someone who gives up Torah to go to Davin, then his tefillah is a toeva, and he implied to him that he should have stayed and learned and not been so, so fastidious to go and Davin at that moment when they were in the middle of learning. Again, the Gemara is going to discuss it again on tomorrow's daf. And over there, Tosafot qualifies this din by saying this is only true by people where Toratan umanatan. But it's not for us today, and it's not even a consideration for us to forfeit tefillah in order to learn. Now the Gemara moves on to other items that were mentioned, that if you start or engage in them, that you don't have to stop for mincha, depending on when you started from them. So we just discussed, when is it the beginning of the meal? Now it's me'imatayat din. When is it the beginning of the case or the court session that you don't have to interrupt it in order to daven. One is when they wrap themselves up in talitot, the dayanim. When the litigants open with their claims below pligate, and they're not arguing. If they're already sitting, the court is already in session, and now you have a new case coming in front of you. In that instance, then the case begins when the litigants start to bring their claims. If they were just starting out the day and first session of the day, then it's going to be that they began when they wrapped themselves in a talit. Rashi over here makes an interesting note. He says the reason that they put themselves into a talit and wrapped their head in a talit is one because of the presence of God, that God is found together with the Dayanim. And number two is, it's also so they stay focused and they are not distracted by that which is going on on the sides or around them. And therefore they can focus completely on the case that is in front of them. Rabbi Ami and Ravasi were learning between the pillars of the Beit Midrash. The pillars were the structural support for the upper part of the roof of the Beit Midrash. We actually bumped into them in the Gemar and Brachot, both in Dav Chedam and Aleph and Lamud and Rebed, even though there were 13 shuls in Tveria, they used to dive and wear Bein Amude, between the pillars where they used to learn. That's the same Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi. Every once in a while, they used to knock on the side of the door. And they would announce, someone has a case they need adjudicated, please come in. So they would learn. And while they were learning, every once in a while they'd stop just to indicate to anybody who needs a case adjudicated that they were available for that. Those who points out from this, you see that adjudicating a case or doing a din is more important than learning of Torah. And that's why they would stop their learning in order to ask that question or open up the possibility of adjudicating a case. Rav Chista and Rabbi Baravuna were engaged in adjudication all day long. They were weakened by it. Rashi brings two interpretations. One is that they were psychologically weakened by it. 
which fits better with the remainder of the Gemara, although Rashi favors the interpretation, says that they were physically weakened by it because they were fasting and they weren't eating. Tanuluhu Rabbechia by Rav Midifti. The Rabbechia brings a brighta that it says about Moshe Rabbeinu. al Moshe that the people were waiting online at the beginning of Pasha Ditro from morning until night to seek counsel with Moshe and to get adjudication by Moshe Rabbeinu. Is it possible that Moshe was adjudicating cases all day long? Then when do you get a chance to learn Torah, review Torah, teach Torah? How could that be? It comes to teach you. Any judge that adjudicates a case to its final conclusion in truth and properly, even for one hour, that person becomes as if he is a partner with the Kodesh Baruch Hu in the creation. Because it says, morning until night, so Boker and Erev are used in both cases. You have, in a sense, an Akkadic Shava that says that adjudication is equivalent to creation. The truth is that a Kodesh Baruch Hu built his world that it, it should run on emet, chutamosh al-kosh is emet, truth and proper behavior, stokal mishpat, are the way that Hashem wants his world to run. And then when the judges adjudicate cases in that proper fashion, they're really carrying out the will of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And that way they're furthering the creation of the world, and that's why they are shutafim to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Well, the Torah gives a nice explanation that a Kodesh Baruch Hu created the world so that it will be lasting, and the Ganavim and the Gazlanim actually cause that to be undone. That's why we see by the Dora Mabul that they were destroyed, Allah Hamas, because of the theft and the graft. And therefore the Dayanim who work against those individuals and do the right thing and are not involved in bribery and graft and all sorts of other problems, then they're actually Bimikayim. They're upholding and sustaining the world the way a Kodesh Baruch Hu wanted it. Now, if you believe that they were weakened psychologically because they were adjudicating all day, and they were worried about the fact that their Torah learning was going by the wayside, Rav Chia says to them that you have a bright that where Moshe Rabbeinu has the same thing going on. And if he was done, Koleyom Kulo, what happened to his Torah? But it comes to teach you that if you adjudicate properly, it's considered to be something amazing, that you're a partner with a Kodesh Baruch Hu in creation, so you don't have to worry so much about your Torah. The other way you could read it is that you don't need to be adjudicating all day. Even if you do small amounts of adjudication and you just do them right, then that's enough because it's as if you are a shutaf to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, or it's as if you have been adjudicating all day, and then you can go for the remainder of the day and learn. Or the way Rashi explains it, that they were physically weakened by it, then it's harder to understand what the continuation of the Gemara is. You'd have to explain that he's telling them you don't need to adjudicate all day and be fasting all day because if you just get a couple of them right, then that's considered to be as if you did it all day long and you're shutaf to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And so therefore you could eat later in the day. You don't need to put yourselves through this difficulty. And that would be then the explanation of the Gemara. So then the Gemara says, Ad matai yoshvim bedin. Until what point in time in the day is it appropriate to adjudicate? Meaning that the basis for the question, as Rashi said over here, was that they were physically weakened because they weren't eating. How long do they need to, in a proper circumstance, stay adjudicating in the morning till the point where they need to eat? What is that point? Amar of Sheshe, that's Van Suda. Till the time that you normally eat. Amar of Chama Maikra. Where do you know that from? Dichdiv. It says in the Pasuk in Gwelet, Ilach Eretz Shemalkech Nar. Woe is it to the land where their king is a youngster. 
and your ministers eat in the morning. Ashrecha Eretz, the better way or praiseworthy or lucky is the place. Shemalkech ben Churim, that your prince or your king is the son of other kings. Visarayich be'ejiochelu, and your ministers eat at the proper time. Big in strength. Velo b'shtiya, not in drunkenness. Big shel Torah. Velo b'shtiya shel yain. They do it with strength of Torah and not the drinking of wine. And as Rashi says over here, the Dayan is called a Melech, because of the Posuk Melech Bemishpat Yamid Eretz. And so therefore, lucky is the place where their kings postpone their eating and drinking in order to be Oseik Bigvurashel Torah. And over here it says that it's improper for the kings to eat too early in the day, or it's a negative thing if the kings eat so early in the day. And similarly over here, the Chachamim, or the Dayanim, should postpone their suda until the appropriate time and not be engaged in eating and drinking before they've taken care of all that adjudication. And we'll see in a second, the Gemara will lay out when is the appropriate time to eat. And Tozwa points out over here that Din Amit Emet Amito, bringing a case to its true conclusion, it comes to exclude a Din Mirumeh. And he's hinting to what is said in the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Shvot, Machlokat Rashi and Tosfot exactly how to read this, but that there are situations in which the Dayanim understand or suspicious of either the litigants lying or the Edim lying, and therefore they are allowed to paskin a din shalohemet. They're allowed to come to a false conclusion because they realize that there is a problem in the case and that someone is lying or the evidence is not supportive of what's being presented to them. They're therefore allowed to paskin against what would have been either the litigant's claim or the edim's claim in order to get to the right answer. So that's a din mirumeh. And what Tosfut is saying over here is that it's a din emet lamito, is in a case where you bring it to its true conclusion, lafuke din mirumeh, to exclude a case where it is a case where you're bringing it to its wrong conclusion because you think that is the truth. And so he thinks that it's coming to exclude that case. Whether it means dimirumah, meaning something that's totally false, which seems obvious that you shouldn't be doing something false, more likely on the lines of you shouldn't be involved in so many of these cases where you have to paskin against the evidence because you think that the parties are lying or that you're not coming to the true outcome based on the procedural evidence that's brought in the case. Then the Gemara brings an Ebrita to tell us when that time is. The first hour of the day was the time that the Rashi calls them a nation of cannibals used to eat. The Ludim are also mentioned in other parts of the Gemara as being very difficult individuals who overran Bavel at certain points. The second hour is Machalistim. Again, it seems to be that they were up late at night or through the night. Therefore, they're eating their meal at the second hour of the morning. Shlishit Machal Yoshim, the third hour is for people who inherited great wealth and they didn't have any worries and they don't really need to go to work. They really can already eat by the third hour. Reviit Machal Poalim, the fourth hour is the time period where the laborers eat. Kamishit Machal Kol Adam, and the fifth hour is when everybody eats. Ini, is that really true? Bamara Papa Reviit, Mansudal Adam. The fourth hour, which we learned in the Gemara in Tefillah Tashachar, is considered to be Boker, according to Rabbi Yehuda. So that Revit, the fourth hour, is Mansudalot Kol Adam. Ela Revit, Machal Kol Adam. The fourth hour is when everybody eats. Chamishit, Machal Poalim. And the Poalim postpone until the fifth hour because they are working or engaged in work of the Balabai. Shishit, Machal Tamin Chacham. And Tamin Chachamim push off to the sixth hour. And that's what's meant in the Pasuk, that they defer their drinking or their eating in order to be involved in Gvurash Torah 
they postpone their eating until the sixth hour of the day. Mikan ve'elech, kizurek evin lechachemet, which means as if throwing a stone into a flask. From Rashi, it seems eno malev, eno murid. It makes no difference. It's not beneficial. It's not deleterious, but it has no benefit. That's because it makes the flask look full, but it's full of nothing because it doesn't have water in it or wine or anything else in it. The Rashi then brings a second possibility, which is that not only is it not effective, but it's also detrimental. It is unhealthy to eat at that point in time, and therefore one should not postpone their meal after that point in time. But then that is qualified by Amr Abayi, Lomran, at the low time, that's only if you didn't eat or taste something earlier in the day. So you're fasting all the way through then. If you go past then, then it's problematic. About time, if you ate something in the morning, a small snack, late lamba, then postponing the meal a little longer isn't a problem. Amr Abayi, the person can daven even in the bathhouse. Is that really true? If you're in the place where everybody's dressed, that's the first chamber where you come in. You can say Kriyachma, you can daven, and you can greet people and use the Shem Hashem in your Shelat Shalom. And you'll have to put on Tefillin there, and you don't have to take them off if you're already wearing them. In the middle chamber, which is actually when you exit from the bath, then you come out and you quickly get dressed there. So people enter there while they're naked, but they get dressed very quickly. Over there, Yeshem Shelat Shalom. Over there, you're allowed to greet people with the Shem Hashem. Vein Shem Mikra Utfila. You can't say Kriyachman. You can't daven there. Vein Cholet Tfilin. If you're already wearing Tfilin, you don't need to take them off. Vein Omeniach Lechatchila. But you can't put them on if they're not already on. In the place where people are naked, meaning the actual bathhouse or in the Schwitz, you can't even greet each other with the Shem Hashem. And certainly you can't say If you're wearing Tfilin, you have to take them off. Of course, you don't have to put them on. Rashi says that's unnecessary over here. It's only because in the middle case we said that you can keep them on if they're already on, but you can't put them on if don't have them on already. It paralleled the language over here. So then it shows you that you can't daven in a Beit Merchatz. So how is it possible that Ravader Baba is telling us that a person can daven in the Beit Merchatz? So it says, Kikama Ravader Baba is Bermechat Shein Boladam. It's talking about a place, a Beit Merchatz, where there's nobody present currently, so there's nobody naked there. Vaha. Then we have in the Gemara, in the Brachot, and the Chavavam and Aleph, Bamar Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina, Merchatz Shamru. They bathhouse Abishem Boadam. Doesn't matter whether there are people there or not. The areas where people normally get dressed, undressed, or are naked, they have that status whether there are people there or not. And a bathroom is a problem even if at the present time there's no tsoa, there's no feces there, it still has the status of a bathroom. Again, like we answered in the Gemara Brachol, we're talking about a new bathhouse. Didn't Ravina have a question about a new bathhouse? Or really a beta kisei, a bathroom, to his minu the beta kisei mao. The person designated something to be used as a beta kisei, what's the din? Yesh zimun? Is that preparation sufficiently make it into some place that you can no longer use anymore? Wayne zimun? Or is that not the case? And until it's used, it doesn't have a classification of a beta kisei. And we had no answer to that question. Wouldn't you say the same thing about the beta merchats? Just like he presented the question by beta kisei, he would feel the same way about the Beit HaMachatz. He says, no, maybe not. Dilma shiny Beit HaKisei, the Mois, the way the Tosfet has it, Nofi Suama, that Beit HaKisei is significantly more offensive or disgusting in its nature than a Beit HaMachatz. And therefore, maybe 
by the Beit HaKisei, he was uncertain as whether Azmana is an issue or not, because it's already such a place that's inappropriate, that even if you designate it, it'd be problematic. By Beit HaMerchatz, but simply because of the way that people walk around there, that causes the problem, maybe over there, even Azmana would not be an issue until it's actually used as a Beit HaMerchatz. By Tosafot point out that in the Gemara Megillah, where the question is posed by Ravina, he actually asked the question about both of them, and it seems there in the Gemara that the question or the issue remains unresolved for both of these issues. By Tosafot say that maybe when the Gemara went on and continued to say it was unresolved, they're only saying that about the Beit HaKisei, not the Beit HaMerchatz, and the Beit HaMerchatz was solved like we see over here, or the possibility that the question about Beit HaMerchatz and the Gemara Megillah is not from Ravina's statement, it's the Gemara superimposing that on the same question, saying maybe the question should exist here as well, and therefore the answer is only related to Beit HaKisei, and our Gemara here differentiates a bit between them. The Gemara then continues to discuss the fact that it mentioned the Brayta, Ein Sham Shelat Shalom, the one is not allowed to greet in that area where the people are naked in the bathhouse. This is supportive of Rav Hamnuna's contention that Mishmei Dula, in the name of Ula, person not to greet his friend in the Beit Merchatz, not simply to say hello, but rather to use the shame Shalom. Because in Sefer Shoftim, Gidon calls a Kodesh Baruch Hu, but he calls Hashem Shalom. He calls the Kodesh Baruch Hu's name is Shalom. And you can't use the Shem Hashem in a place that would not be appropriate where people are naked or in a bathroom. Elamiata hemnuta nami asur. So maybe if that's the case, maybe the term of hemnuta in the faith of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, using that terminology should also be asur. Bemeimar bebeita kisei to be said in a bathroom. Dichtiv. Because the Pasuk says, God is a faithful and reliable God. If you want to say, okay, maybe it is. Maybe it's the same din as Shalom. One can use the Shem Hashem of Hemnuta in the Beit HaKisei. My answer is a fundamental difference. When it's Hemnuta or Neman, that is not a name of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, but rather it is a description of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. It is the qualities of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. So we use those adjectives to describe a Kodesh Baruch Hu, which is not really Him, or his essence, but simply the way that he interacts with us, so it's a way for us to gain some understanding or attribute something to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Dimitar because when you translate into Aramaic, HaKel HaNeaman, it says, Elukam Hemno, the God who is faithful or who is reliable. So it's not speaking about God himself, the name Shem Hashem is Eluka, but it's the Kel part of it, the Neaman is just a descriptor. Bahaka Shem Gufei Kreis Shalom. Over here, Gidon is calling a God Baruch Hu by the name Shalom itself. Shalom. He called Hashem Shalom itself. Tosvot says, if you go look at the Targum over there as well, the Targum is the Avid Le Shalom. He called him the God who does Shalom. Tosvot says that there's a difference. Because there he was saying Shem Hashem because he's Ose Shalom. He does Shalom. And he shouldn't have said Hashem Shalom if he was speaking about his interaction with him. He should have said Shlomo. So if you look in the Maram, in the back of the Gemara over here, he explains the difference as being whether you do it in the plural form or in the singular form. Had it been that Gidon was just speaking about his interaction with God and that God was Shalom, then he should have said Hashem Shlomo. The fact that he expresses it in the plural form as if it means that God is always Bishalom, that's indicative of the fact that it's not simply about his interaction with God, but this is actually the Shem Hashem. It's not just an attribute, but actually part and parcel of the name of Hashem. The Marshal actually has a more detailed explanation where he says that when a Kodesh Baruch Hu displays midot that are similar to what people do, 
or activities that people engage in, then that's something that is considered to be a kinoi or a descriptor of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, not a shame of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. On the other hand, when you have items where the name of a Kodesh Baruch Hu is something that is not inherent or innate to a man, then that is considered to be a shame Hashem and not just a kinoi. And he points out, based on a medrash at the time of the creation of man, that some of the parties didn't want to create man because it says that man is kulo katata. He's always in quarrels, he's always in divisiveness, and peace and tranquility aren't exactly the midot of man. And therefore, when a Kosh Baruch has the midot of shalom, it's clearly his name and not simply a description of him because it's something that we don't find in man. On the other hand, when you speak about a Kosh Baruch like Kel Rachum Vichanon, where these are midot that we do find by man, those are considered to be rather kinuim, descriptors of a Kosh Baruch rather than inherent names of a Kosh Baruch since these are trademarks of people and the things that we expect from people, they're shutaf to Hashem in this. You can't say that's the name of God, but rather it's an attribute of God. On the other hand, it's not something that's naturally found in people. And that's why God's name is known as Shalom. And he says the same thing is true about truthfulness and honesty, which again is is the seal of as again not an innate or natural midah man. He brings the medrash again from the creation of man, where man is kulo sheker. And so therefore, the names that imply something that's differentiated in God that's not found in man, those are names of a Kodesh Baruch The descriptors that are also found in man, then they're exactly that. They're descriptions of our interactions with a Kodesh Baruch and the way the Kodesh Baruch presents himself, but they're not names of a Kodesh Baruch And in that way, it distinguishes between Shalom and Naaman, where the Targum seems to be similar over here. The Marsha explains it in that way in order to help differentiate between these two cases. So here we have a series of, this is a reminiscent of what we had in the Gemara and Brachot. Here we have a series of Memrod from the same Amurayim, and therefore they're brought here not because there's any connection between them, but the only common denominator is the individuals who said them. That is, So the person who gives a gift to his friend needs to inform him of that. It says in Pasha Kitisa, the guards to the Shabbat, that Hashem gave us the Shabbat, Tell them that I'm giving them the Shabbat so that they know that I am sanctifying them. We have a bright that's supportive of this. I have this great gift in my treasuries. Shabbat Shema. And it's called Shabbat. I want to give it to Bnei Israel. Go and tell them about it. Similarly, if you give a gift to a young child, you have to let his mother know that you've given him the gift. My What do you do in order to indicate to the mother that you gave a gift to the child? Either you put some oil on his forehead, or you put some eye makeup around his eye, and then when the child comes to parent the last, well, where did that come from? And he'll explain, well, so-and-so did that, and he also gave me this gift. Today, where... We worry about sorcery and witchcraft with these types of items. My, what do you do in order to make the, leave a siman on the child? Whatever you gifted him with, you take a, bar, a piece of it and then you rub it on his forehead so that the person will see and ask the question of the child. So you see here, there's an importance in making known or informing the individual of the gift. Now, Rashi over here brings two reasons for that. He says that, first of all, that Zedar Kavod, 
it's only appropriate and respectful to let the person know that you're going to be gifting them to Shemit Ba'ish the Kabbalah, because maybe they'll be embarrassed to receive it. And Rashi seems to indicate that's when it's given in a public forum or in a public manner, you should seek approval from the person beforehand so that you don't embarrass them by giving it to them in public. Tosafot attributes that to maybe Stoka or Aniim, where we don't want to embarrass them when you're giving a gift, because Matan Besaiter is much greater. So that's where it comes in that you have to let them know ahead of time so they're not embarrassed it's going to be done in public. Rashi doesn't mention Aniim over here, he just mentions the public nature of it. Then he says if it's given in private, then there's a value in indicating that you're giving the gift, not because of the embarrassment issue anymore, but because then the person will feel positive feelings towards you. It'll engender friendship, camaraderie, and positive things between parties. It's like Mishloach Manot Ishtarehu. And therefore, if you let the person know who gifted it, that increases Shalom Ba'udam, and therefore there's a value in that as well. It says, Ini, is it really true? You don't need to make it known to him. Shnamar. Moshe lo yadaki karan or panav bidabro ito. Again, from Pasha Kitisa, when Moshe returns down from seeing a Kodesh Baruch Ho, says that he comes back and his face is radiating and he has these horns of glory on him, but he didn't know that, that they were there until he came down and the people see him with that and they back away from it. Mar says, hello kasho. That's not a problem. Over there it was going to become known. He didn't tell Moshe right away. But Moshe was going to find out about it when he descended the mountain and he spoke to Bnei Yisrael or to Aaron and the Zikanim. So there would be information that he would know about in the future. Therefore, you don't have to inform him because he will come to know it anyway. When the child goes back home, if you don't inform the parent, they'll never know because the child will never say anything about it. So there you need to inform them if they're not going to find out about it otherwise. What about the fact that Shabbat in the end was going to aim to become known? Meaning that, why did Akash Baruch Hu insist that Moshe tell him about the gift of Shabbat if it was going to be something they were going to know about? Either because when the month falls in Parshat B'Shalach, it doesn't come down on Shabbat, so it's going to be obvious that there is a din of Shabbat, or because in the end, the Bnei Yisrael were going to receive the Torah and they were going to know there's a din of Shabbat. So why did he need to inform them about the Shabbat earlier on? You're right, Shabbat itself, was something that was going to become known, but the rewards for those that keep Shabbat was never going to be revealed. And that's what a Kosh Baruch insisted that Moshe share with the people. Now the Gemara continues, Rav Chistav Enokib Yodei Tarte Matnato de Torah. Rav Chistav was walking along with two gifts from a Torah. As Rashi explains over here, Rav Chistav was a Kohen, and he's speaking about two of the gifts of the Zroah, the Chayayim, and the Kebah. So he had some Matnot Kuna that were given to him as a Kohen. Rashi discusses the problem over here that Rav Chista is in Bavel. And we have, from the Gemara, we saw it in the Gemara Brachot, it's brought in Chulin as well, that we paskin in three areas like Tlatay Sabe, like the three elders. And one of those was that we paskin like Rabbi Eloi, Bereshita Geis, that Matnot Kuna, like that, are not Nohag in Chutz and only in Eretz Yisrael. And Reshita Geis and the Matnot Kuna of Zerodachayim and Keba would be in the same category. And so why is it that Rav Chista over here has Matnot Kuna in Babel? So Rashi explains that it took time for that to take hold. And that there were periods of time where they first paskin like Rabbi Eloi with regards to Rashida Geis. But still the Matnot were still being given to the Kohanim in Chutz And later on the Minog developed that they also didn't give the Matnot of Zerol Chayayim and the Kebat to the Kohanim. And Rashi makes a comment. Just like when the minog of Rashida Gaze came to be that they followed Rabbi Eloi, 
in the time of Rav Nachman, and nobody stopped them, and nobody rejected that or objected to that. And now we all follow that practice. So too, since the practice developed with the matnot of the animal, not to give it to the Kohen, and that follows that same idea of Rabbi Eli and is now in consonance with that of Rashid Agais, even though that may not have been the practice before, but now that they became the practice and nobody objected to it, we continue to practice in that way, and therefore we don't give the matnot to them. But in the time of Chista, they still had the practice of giving the matnot kuna, and that's why he's holding them. Anybody who tells me over a memra from Rav that I don't know, I'll give it to them. Now again, the matnot or chulin, biyada kohen, he can do with them as he pleases, including giving them to whoever he chooses, including Yisrael. So he's offering to gift them to whoever gives them a piece of Torah that he wants to hear. This is what Rav says, same party that we have noted all the way along, who's bringing memro from Rav, says over here, this memro that we just noted in the Gemara, that a person gives something to someone, they have to inform them. That's what we saw before. He gave Rav of Barmachsia the Matnot, because he, as he promised, he heard something new from Rav that he hadn't heard before, and he gave it to them. So Rav of Barmachsia says, you love the Memrot of Rav so much that you want to hear more of them? I'm laying, yes, of course. That's what Rav says. Milta al-Vishayu Yakira. As Rashi explains over here, Mi'il. A cloak or a jacket is expensive or held in high esteem by the one who normally wears it. So you who are searching for the memorot of Rav, so in your eyes they are worthy and expensive and you hold them in high esteem. Just like a person who is of high stature, that having the proper clothing and cloak that adorns them is important to them and appropriate for them and valuable to them, so too for you. Rav Rav said something like that? But right, Adifa Limi Kameita. If he says something like that, that latter one that you told me is even better than the first one that you told me. Had I another matana to give to you, I would give it to you to reward you for giving me this other memra. Obviously, he favored that memra because it was personal to him. He was someone who was a Talmud of Rav and held the memra of Rav in high esteem, and therefore it was specifically appropriate to him that the saying of a garment is precious to its wearer is appropriate for you, who is a young Talmud of Rav, who cherishes that which he says, and so therefore you felt especially connected to that memra of Rav. Or the idea that the cloak of an individual is dear to him, that which a person wears normally and it's his own, he feels an emotional connection to it. And similarly, you feel an emotional connection to the Memorot of Rav because they are something that is special and unique to you. Okay, we're going to stop here by the two dots, 12 lines up from the bottom of Yud Amun Bet.